Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Of Poetry Podcast with the poet Amanda Moore. Amanda Moore's debut collection of poetry, Requeening, was selected for the 2020 National Poetry Series by Ocean Vuong and published by HarperCollins and Echo in October 2021. Amanda's poems have appeared in journals and anthologies, including Best New Poets, Ziziva, and Mamas and Papas on the sublime and heartbreaking art of parenting. And her essays have appeared in the Baltimore Review, Hippocampus Magazine, and on the University of Arizona's Poetry Center's blog. Amanda is the recipient of writing awards, residencies, and fellowships from the Brown Handler Residency in Cahoots, the Writer's Grotto, the Writing Salon, Brush Creek Arts Foundation, and the Salt and Stall Foundation for the Arts. Poetry co-editor at Women's Voices for Change and a reader at Vita Review and Inch, America is a high school, sorry, <laughs> Amanda is a high school English teacher and lives by the beach in the outer sunset neighborhood of San Francisco with her husband and daughter. Hello and welcome, Amanda. Hi, Han. Thank you so much for having me here. Well, thank you for joining me this morning. Would you like to start us off with a poem? Sure, I'll read the opening poem from the book, Great. Uh, which is Opening the Hive. Late afternoon slants, illuminates the worn white husk of hive and gleams like an incubator bulb on the oval of an egg. This might have been the way I was born, to move over my mother and wash from her what was left of painful birth. Her legs, like the old wood cracked with a hive tool, my lips clamping and the bees burrowing into honeycomb, bathed in sweetness, a taste fresher when robbed this way. Smoke to calm, to push the heaving down, down to the center where the queen hides and is stroked, flanked by the upturned rumps of guard bees, wings fanning scent in warning. I opened this small universe and set it in motion a new heart ready to be fed and broken and fed again, gathering strength to reseal and take into itself what we leave behind, fingerprints through broken comb and crushed drones. This might have been the way I was born, then set to life, stolen honey clinging to light hair that covers everything new, like late afternoon sunlight, a kiss on my dented forehead, Mother collapsed and emptied of poison, barbed stinger, and the baby, the jelly, the bee. Thank you. So I wanted to begin with asking you to describe the conceptual narrative of requeening and how your poems hinge on motherhood and beekeeping and I mean, you begin, so I feel like we wrestle with the opening poem for manuscripts a lot, but considering that your first poem in Requeening is opening the hive, that's like the perfect place um, where all of these, you know, where motherhood and birth and, um, you know, the hive and the egg, it just layers all of these different concepts on top of each other. So I feel like this is a really good, good place to begin. I've been writing 
poems about bees for 20 years since I took a beekeeping class as part of my MFA program when I was at Cornell in the late 90s and early 2000s. And I find over, I found over my very long writing up until this book that at different stages in my life, I was coming back to that metaphor of the bees. And I was keeping bees off and on um, which might have been why they were returning to me, but also I realized it is this idea of matriarchy and maternal succession and the life I was living, the, the life cycle of a bee and the life of a hive is, is rife with metaphor and such a clear sort of guiding principle for, a, in my case, for a woman going through many phases of her life. And so when I was trying to organize the book, you know, at that point I had amassed over 20 years poems written from so many different stages. And I had what I thought was two different collections. I had all of these poems of, of early motherhood and romantic love. And then I had these poems of illness and grief and, and death. And I didn't see how they fit together until I, I hit on with the help of a teacher with actually Amy Nazuka Matato um, said, well, you know, beehives collapse. And it just really opened something for me that maybe the hive gave this book structure. And if I looked at the life cycle of the hive, if I turned the guiding metaphors that kept coming back into my poems into a structure, then that could be sort of the narrative cycle of the book. So starting with you know a new hive and the, the birthing of the worker bees and the raising of the queen, and then to the point where she has to be requeened and, and this idea of maternal succession. And then it allowed me to include collapse and death and, and grief. And I'm probably completely anthropomorphizing bees and they don't deserve all of my um, metaphorical impositions, but it, that really allowed me to figure out what the structure of the book was and shed dozens of poems to create this narrative arc. Wow, that is so interesting. And I'd love that you had the opportunity to take that class early on. Um, that's, I feel like that's one of the most unusual classes I've heard someone saying they took during an MFA. Um, yeah, I think it, I don't know. I think that I had not thought about the ways that, you know, the metaphor of the metaphor and the reality of bees can um, shoulder kind of emotional weight. And um, although I had a friend who kept bees, um, and they swarmed or, you know, they left and she had so much grief about it that like, she hasn't, she hasn't had bees since then. Um, and I remember being very impressed by like how, how hard that was like, cause it seems like, I don't know, in some way it seems so natural, like, well, they, they did what they wanted to do, you know? And, but, um, that was really hard, hard for them. But, um, and I'm, I think I'm so um, interested in the way your book is open to um, the difficulties of motherhood, the um, kind of the grief um, of motherhood, the bodily, um, I don't think I want to use the word sacrifice, but in terms of like, like things you give up and um, labor and it's just, it's complicated, right? Like, in, and as you say, there are cycles. And um, I think the idea of having um, a natural cycle to think about as you, you live your human animal life is really interesting to think about too, because it's, you know, I think thinking in terms of cycle is so much more helpful than thinking in terms of like a linear narrative. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And with it's, poetry It's interesting. Too. 
that you say grief, I also, when my beast form, I feel guilt. Hmm. And so now I'm finding a new level of the, um, you know, just in some of the terms of motherhood, how, how much guilt I personally have felt, but I think I, I share that with other mothers when things go wrong. Um, how am I responsible for this? What did I do that made my bees swarm or um, how did I neglect them that they swarmed? So there's, there's that too. Yeah. And, you know, mm. with motherhood and beehives, you get the honey and you get the stings. I mean, it just seems sometimes I worry that the, the beehive thing is too on the nose for all of this, because it really <laughs> is this, you know, matriarchal for me, you know, I'm the, mm. the daughter of a, of a single mother and my grandmother was very big on both sides of my family and my life. And so even just that the matriarchal structure and the fact that they kick the, the drones out in the winter because they're not very useful other than the insemination. Sometimes I worry that like, oh, it's just too easy to pull from bees. <laughs> yeah, I, I was thinking about um, Plath's Ariel too when reading your book because um, I mean, like I remember the first time I read Plath's Ariel and um, I had this kind of caricature of what Plath wrote in my head. And, um, and then I was like, oh my goodness, this is a mother. There's so, this is a motherhood book. This, there's nursing, there's um, bees, like there's so much like life. And um, it wasn't the Plath I expected to find. Um, I know. I mean, Morning Song for me, that, yeah. that is one of the, that's the book I had by my bed when in the my daughter's first year when I was going through the pumping and the nursing and the the trying to have a, a life and and I think people would see that and think it was very dark or mm. you know the fact that I would read a plath poem at her first birthday but to me that's such a it's such an honest beautiful book about mothering yeah. and I find it really actually very tender and mm. sentimental when she writes about Nick and the candlestick there yes. there are those poems of deep love mm-hmm. And then there are also the poems that, that ignore, sorry, acknowledge all of the horror of life. And I just, I find the emotional tenor that she strikes throughout to be really guiding and inspirational. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Um, and so I, I think that that's like a, a beautiful connection across, across literary, you know, influence. Like when we try to trace, um, that's really interesting. And, um, I don't know. I was also really moved reading Requeening that knowing that it was selected by Ocean Vuong, like that was really encouraging to me because a lot of times we think like, oh, will the judge be a good reader for our poems? Like, will this person, you know, be a good reader for poems of motherhood? Or, you know, like we have a lot of, um, I think, anxieties about like who we will connect with and it, you know, who will support our work. And so I think I was just like, I was like, ocean love these poems. Like I love, <laughs> I love thinking about that. Um, and all the ways we're connected through readers and judges and um, people who believe in our work and see it. I do. I mean, it's such a huge honor, partly, I mean, his work is extraordinary. There are so many ways in which I think we're always trying to figure out what is it that, mm. that connects a judge. And I have no idea really, mm. But, you know, his work around his own mother, and we're all breathlessly waiting for his latest book, which is Time as a Mother. So he's, he's clearly invested mm-hmm. in motherhood. Mm-hmm. But for me, also just that cross-generational, he's much younger than I am. Mm-hmm. And I think um, we hear this anxiety from, from poets sometimes that there are big generation gaps, or there are, are all kinds of gaps between 
poets and what we read and what we write. And I just don't find that to be true. And, and I'm so grateful that, that I get to sort of count on him in my literary universe in this way. I think it's, I just feel so lucky. Yeah, I think so too, that the poetry connects us across, across generations kind of effortlessly in some ways. Um, and, and that's his whole ethos. I mean, he is just mm-hmm. such a gift to literary communities. We, you and I were talking a little bit about social media and that's a reason to wake up every day and check Instagram. It's sort of, you know, the, the goodness that he puts out into the world and the reminder of where poetry is and where poetry lives is mm-hmm. so, so helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I do think so that, that there's a generosity there. Um, and I'm always, I mean, I just, I love knowing what, what judge chose what book um, and what they were looking for. And there, there, I think there is such a, like a line of honoring and um, I don't know, it's like this editorial blessing that happens on a book. I mean, I think of Carl Phillips selecting Jill Osher's book and, Mm. and many, many others, of course. Um, But I just, I love thinking about like, what they loved when they read that book, because, you know, we do read like kind of tuned towards what we love um, and, and what surprises us too and what haunts us and, you know, lots of other things, but um, yeah, that's, that's, I'm really like, and I, I will talk about this candidly with students and stuff. I'm really against prize culture and, and um, the money spent on poetry publishing. And, you know, I ethically, I've got some opinions um, and practices myself, but I do love to see these connections um, of work and the work that gets supported. I just wish more work got supported. It's, you know, <laughs> that <It's> wish. <laughs> I hear you on that. And one of the things that I think is so lovely about the way what Pecan Light came out, I mean, that's the best press in the world, oh. full of humans <laughs> who are really working around this idea of loving poetry and not commodifying poetry. I mean, it just makes so much sense that that's where you would end up too. And I love that it exa- it's so exciting for me that I get to read in even a small portion with um, the people who run that press because that's the ideal, right? That they're, they're here for the love of poetry and not for the prize culture or the commodification. It's, yeah. it's just lovely. Yeah, I do. Um... I think there are a lot of people leading by example and um, kind of reimagining, you know, what our spaces can look like and who they can include and pay what you can. And um, I think that there are a lot of really cool models happening right now. I just, um, and I'm all for like reinventing spaces and, um, you know, creating the spaces we need to. And that's something I, you know, that's something I'm always trying to convince students to do, um, like make, create the spaces you need and want to see in the world. Um, but, um, to, to turn our conversation back to requeening, um, do you have, I'm sure, I'm sure you do, um, but thoughts on the poetics of motherhood and, um, sentiment. And is that even, I think that's something you would be on board with people talking about with, with requeening. Oh yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting when I talk about the poems of motherhood or the poetics of motherhood, I didn't write a lot about motherhood while I was experiencing it. And likewise, later in the book, there are lots of poems of illness and I really couldn't write in the throes of illness either. 
Um, and so one of the things, especially with those early motherhood poems that I was writing both toward and, and hesitant of was the haze of nostalgia. And, and I still feel like I have a lot of nostalgia and there's a way in which those early motherhood poems, I feel like really are foggy in their nostalgia. Whereas as we come closer to adolescence, that fog dissipates and it becomes a little more harrowing and maybe a little more honest about the difficulties. But I think one of the things that I struggle with um, both in my book and in reading about motherhood in general is that balance between sentimentality and brutality because it really, motherhood itself is something that changes every single moment and every single second. And so to pin it like an insect on the page, which is sort of what, what mm. I at least was doing in some of these poems, capturing moments or trying to capture those feelings. I think you really have to consider the poems as a whole as opposed to one individual one. And whenever I'm preparing for a reading, I really am thinking about what, what kind of a mother am I bringing to the, to the reading mm -hmm. and, and how do I achieve that balance? And, yeah. you know, I get a lot of credit for, or at least a, a lot of people talk to me about, oh, you know, thank you for writing those hard poems about adolescence. I feel like no one talks about that. I feel like no one prepares me for that, which is great. But I feel like we all say that to each other all the time. Like, <laughs> this is so hard. How are we doing it? Um, so I don't, I don't actually think it's um, so bold to write about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hear that. I, I don't know why, um, but there's, I mean, I guess I do know why, but there's, there's like this pernicious narrative that like, no one's writing about miscarriage. No one's writing about raising teens. No one's writing about, and it's, I don't, you know, it, it, I, I guess I say, I don't know why, because these are such ubiquitous narratives and there are so many examples of writers doing it, but somehow it always ends up feeling like you're doing it alone. <laughs> oh, that's such a great point because I can, right. When you say miscarriage, I'm like, oh, I can think of 10 collections that are dealing with miscarriage mm -hmm. or difficult pregnancies, but there is still this narrative that no one's writing about it. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if it's because we don't want to talk about it a lot. And, yeah. and so we think of these poems as happening in the dark and that we do feel solitary in our pursuit of them. And, mm -hmm. and then are, you know, sort of talked about as, oh, she's willing to do X or Y work when there's so many of us doing that yeah. work. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's complications when you're writing about miscarriage or, or infertility, you're so clearly writing, you know, from, from self or not self. Well, I, I get that we can have the persona. The other complication of the poetics of motherhood is when you're actually writing about children. And that's mm -hmm. been um, a complicated journey for this book and thinking about the ways in which, um, although I think I'm, I'm writing from a mother's perspective at a certain point, they start to involve a child and a child's perspective. And, and as we all wrestle with our own understanding of our relationship to our speakers in poems, it's really a different thing to guide a child through recognizing themselves as a character in the book yeah. or, in, or in a poem. Yeah. And it's such a, it's such a gift that writers have. And I'm, I'm, you know, to stop and think about the self in a, you know, a self-reflexive way and, um, you know, that you turn toward, I don't know, it's just looking at the self like you are kind of not an object, but, and, and not that you're thinking objectively, but it is something, it is a move that you have to practice to like that, you know, it's like, um, what do you call it? Um, I don't know the self-awareness, right. That, and then some people grow up and never have that. Um, and like, I'm, 
you know, adults who, who don't think about what they've just said, like, oh, was that hurtful? Oh, was that like thinking about yourself in relationship with others? Um, and I do think a lot of writers are really good at, that's actually a, a really good skill. Um, not that I think I want to talk about empathy. Like, I think that's kind of a loaded, um, <laughs> that's a loaded discourse these days. Um, but yeah. Um, do you, do you feel as though you are writing with or against the flow of contemporary literature? That's, I, that's such an interesting question because for me, the contemporary flow of literature is such a wide field. There's mm-hmm. so much happening depending on where we're reading. Um, and, and so there are ways in which I feel like what I'm writing, it feels a little antique or a little vintage. Mm-hmm. And part mm-hmm. of it is that some of the poems are, are quite old or at least the seeds of them um, because I'm not someone who has published a few different books. Um, but instead have this book that really represents work over 16 to 20 years. And then, you know, some that I wrote after public, after it was accepted, I still Mm -hmm. added some things to the poem or to the book. I don't know how to answer that question in some ways, because I find in contemporary poetry, part of what we're talking about um, in terms of these presses and and people creating the world that they want is almost everything feels possible. Mm There are parts of contemporary poetry that I wish I was better about speaking to or participating in. There's a lot of, um, I don't write about myself as part of many systems outside of motherhood, or I haven't, at least in this book. And that feels to me outside the flow of contemporary poetry. One of the most exciting things that's happening right now is we're starting to think about not even starting, we've been thinking about it for 10 years, but it's really starting to gain all this popularity, positionality, and looking at race and looking at privilege in poems. Mm-hmm. And I don't, you know, on the one hand, I think I could try to argue that by focusing on the self, I'm doing that, but I'm not, I'm not doing it in really overt ways, which feels against maybe what's, what's big in contemporary poetry right now, but there's mm-hmm. a lot of motherhood so it's a non-answer to say I'm both in the flow and out of the flow and what is the flow um but it's just such an exciting time to be in the conversation of poetry because there's so much happening and it's a great time to be a teacher of poetry because there's so many um different contemporary poems and and poetries to open up to my students yeah yeah I can see that and it it is kind of a a trick question right because um (laughs) I mean, like, and that's something I know you probably talk about with your students that, um, you know, there's this idea like students have about universal writing and universality. And, and one of those things as teachers we often do is kind of help them see that being particular and being rooted in their own present presence is like, how is how you are universal. Like you tap into universality through particularity. You don't, you don't reach for this thing that's suddenly above everything else. Um, but you like, you reach deeply and attentively into your own particularity. Um, I love the way you put that too. Cause for me, that's really it. like being willing, the particularity, but also sacrificing the self in a lot of mm-hmm. ways is really, I think it's important to go toward these tough, topics and these tough situations that we want to write about and we can't do it vaguely to be very particular yeah and I mean I think it's like you what you say about um 
the kind of conversations that we're having right now. Um, and some of them are very new, like um, a writer was pointing out the other day, how new even talking about trauma is, or the, the word talking, like that it used to be something we whispered about. And now that it's something we're able to have conversations about and be writing about in literature. And so it's weird. Like, I think the social media bubble can make you feel like things have been around a really long time when they've actually come out in the last 24 hours or like, you know, like things seem old and it's like, oh, that, that picture was, has only been around 11 months or whatever it's, um, Mm. and the weird time space. I mean, what I think since the 2016 election where everything just felt so, absurdly rushed about government and you know just it was just like this horrible horrible like crash after crash you kept hearing about um and then you know with the pandemic the weird time slow like we've been working through so many different feelings of time um I mean and my children laugh at me because I never know what day it is so like it's breakfast and I kiss them on the head and I'm like happy Friday and they're like it's Thursday, like really bitterly to me. (laughs) I'm sorry. But um, yeah, I mean, children are, you know, that's, that's what my mother always said to me is like, children are the biggest marker of time for you, because, you know, you they're living in front of you. And you're like, you're 10 years old, like, I've been Mm. doing this for 10 years or um, but I, yeah, that's funny, because I don't, you know, it's shocking to me to think, of my child as a marker of time, because I honestly feel like mm. it was yesterday that mm. she was a baby. I have wow. become one of those, it goes so fast kind of people, mm-hmm. or maybe not, because also it feels very long at the same time, but there's just been this compression where at the same time that she's a 16 year old, she's also a newborn wow. to me. Wow. I feel like this is a really, um, a really helpful conversation to have about, um, you know, the fact that you have written some poems, like, I mean, there are poems about birth in your book, mm. right. Um, and, and your child is 16. And uh, I know we talk a lot about, you know, the speaker of the poems versus the poet and, um, and having like the way we have to create these speakers, even if we're writing about events that happen in our lives, we still have to kind of create who is going to articulate it for us. Um, even if it's the I, right? Um, and so how, I mean, how the, your life is carried in this book of poems. Um, and like you said, that there, there are poems that go further back in your life. Mm. Um, and I think, I think that that's so beautifully carried by the hive, like the life of the hive and by this thinking about cycles. Um, and actually, would you like to read a poem? Yeah, which one? I was wondering if you wanted to read Labor is an Exotic Vacation. Oh, yes. Page 29. I'm just saying 29 because um, I can never find my poems in my book. (laughs) (laughs) I have this one for whatever reason, this is cracked open in my book. Um, This is actually a fun one. And when I think about that compression of time we were just talking about, Mm -hmm. I can describe every single second of this night as if it were yesterday. Labor as an exotic vacation. Pretend it was a different adventure. We traveled in our Chrysler down eight mile as if in a dinghy 
gliding from the bright layer cake of yacht toward an undiscovered port, pretend we were prepared for the awkwardness of being foreign, seeking flimsy familiarity and the perfect snapshot to send home. We pictured white sheets and handholding, new scenery and our faces changed. But really, it was like the tropics in July, sweaty and panting, private and primal, paradise to one traveler can be hell for another. So I won't bore you with the hours past, watching the ocean swell and retreat, the tall grasses bend and part in the wind, and some crazy hooting monkey pulling itself up impossibly straight tree trunks. When we left at last, we had a souvenir, a golden idol shaped by heat, meant to be worshipped. Thank you. Actually, like read this poem to my partner. <laughs> um, the idol, I just, I just think it's amazing with that end. Meant to be worshipped. Impossible to be worshipped at the same time. Um, I had a series. I was actually trying to um, reimagine labor as different things to think about that as sort of an archetype. You know, mm -hmm. we think of all of these same experiences that should look the same and feel the same that are, are weighted with their own metaphorical value mm -hmm. um, but this was the only one that was very successful I was trying to do you know labor as an algebra exam I had a whole bunch of them oh, which is wow. you know the fun part of this book is seeing all the on my end is seeing all the things that fell away or all of the companion pieces that didn't arrive hmm. yeah yeah it is I mean it's, it's such an interesting word to labor because it's one of those things that I always feel like is just the most perfect on the one hand, it's like the most perfect name, right? Like is work. Um, and on the other hand, there's, uh, you know, like the gendering of that, that, you know, the, Oh, this is women's work. Oh, this is, mm. this is a woman's body. Oh, this is, um, you know, anyone's body with a uterus, like it's going to be called labor when, when it, your body's in labor. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting too, you know, what I think is, is invisible, although the reference is, is eight mile road, which is we lived right outside of Detroit. Mm -hmm. um, so labor there is a really different word mm -hmm. than even here now when I think about it in California and, and the, these ideas of women's work and our laboring, but we had labor unions and, mm -hmm. and the idea mm -hmm. of labor being something laborious and the connotation of labor always being hard. What I love about the beehive is that, that labor is a means to an end. You know, labor gives us honey. There, there's, there's a sweetness to that work mm -hmm. too. And a, um, maybe something lovely or sweet about the rituals around mm -hmm. labor, which I think I'm also interested in tapping into. Yeah. Yeah. I have a crow laboring outside my window to get your attention right now. I don't know if you can hear. <laughs> Just very faintly. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of things I think that, you know, I think we've actually been moving towards um, in like the larger discourse, um, having labor 
you know, like we are actually making it more um, explicit and labor has become more common to talk about. I mean, I think of the, you know, that we say sex workers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, I think I just read an essay about this the other day that blew my mind, but it was talking about like, you know, sex workers are just simply um, people who get paid for the work that largely women and femmes perform for free. And I was just like blown away. Um, And I'd never thought about sex as work. And that actually was so absolutely freeing for me because I was like, oh, that's why when I'm tired or when, you know, that's why it's a work that there's not always space for that work. And then I feel guilty about it. Cause I have been thinking like, oh, it's just some, it's like a pleasure, like that there are pleasures that are work, um, that there's like love labors that there are, um, you know, and I think of like, so, so many things that have to do with the body that, I mean, I think a period is work. I think like there, if we could like, you know, the way, um, like a miscarriage is labor, you still labor Mm -hmm. with it. And, um, I just think all the ways that we've kind of siphoned off work from thinking about a concept, um, but there's so much more work in it. Um, and I, it does for me come back to writing when you hear people talk about, uh, there's, always this kind of, you know, is writing the worst thing in the world or is it the best thing in the world? And, um, you know, there's often, a, there's often a very loud, we love extremes. So people want to talk about either of those extreme, right. Um, but that writing is work and like, sometimes work is really pleasurable and there are lots of different kinds of work. And, um, and sometimes work is a slog, like, mm-hmm. And so, you know, making sure that there's room and we don't, we don't kind of narrow ourselves in, but we give ourselves, I don't know, I almost want to use the word play. We give ourselves play when we're thinking about the kind of work we're doing. Um, I don't know. It's very, it's interesting to me. And it's, I think it goes so much great stuff in there to think about too. I'm, I'm struck that in the same way that it sounds, it's, it's important to separate the labor of sex with intimacy right and that mm-hmm. I think that's a, a lesson I had early when I left college I went and I worked in Thailand as a just a young I went to teach English and then mm-hmm. had my eyes blown out of my face with just how much there was but I, you know, I ended up working with sex workers in Chiang Mai around you know regular AIDS testing and how they mm-hmm. could have access to services which was just a really early lesson in that sex can mm-hmm. be work but I, I think the same you know, wanting to rip apart the same notions of maternal love and um, sentimentality and thinking about how, you know, mothering is real work and it's Mm -hmm. hard work, but that doesn't mean it's not fulfilling work. Mm -hmm. And I think you and I've talked, I'm a high school teacher. And for years, I used to try to teach Kate Chopin's The Awakening to students, Mm -hmm. to high school students. And I eventually stopped doing it because it was so challenging to have a conversation with people in that age group around how mothering could maybe not always feel fulfilling. They're so (laughs) angry at that mother. They're so mad at her because they haven't yet had enough experience or enough perspective to realize like I can love being a mother and I can love my children and 
the societal expectations and the bodily expectations and the ways in which it's actually labor and work can sometimes be too much. It was just so frustrating to have that conversation and, and also to feel like I was bursting that bubble for them. Like they, you know, they needed yeah. to believe their mothers were blissfully happy for a little while longer, mm. especially because, you know, now I understand they were in these really tough negotiations with their mothers as they were separating from them those teenage years which I'm now experiencing the other side of you know, I'm really happy I stopped teaching that so <laughs> they can find it in their 20s <laughs> later I don't sure yeah yeah that's a really that's a really interesting point um I was just reading some really interesting tweets on Twitter this morning about um the the difficult things that teens are going through and that's why why a um, is, has such fierce topics because like in terms of like losing friends and I'm um, grief and like all of these different, you know, you're having to process so many, so many feelings for the first time in many ways. Um, and I mean, I, I often think about how, you know, a child or an infant's first experience of any pain is always the worst. Like the mm-hmm. first tooth that comes out is a really big deal and the way our bodies learn pain. Um, you know, it's like when an infant has gas and they're just so upset and angry about it. Right. I mean, that, that was eventually they get to the point where they're like, whatever, or they're like laughing about it or, you know, and it's, it's so interesting to me that our bodies like learn pain through gradations. Um, mm-hmm. And that like some of the emotional things that teens are going through is for the first time. It's like the first breakup. It's, um, real. We lived through that here and uh, it was brutal. <laughs> oh, it's, you know, I know. And, I, the, you know, it was mm. funny to, not funny, watching it was painful, mm. but also funny to be in my forties and say, oh my gosh, what I wouldn't give in some ways for the freshness of the crush feeling and the freshness, Mm. you know, knowing what I do know now that you get over it. There's something amazing about experiencing that intensity. I think that one thing I'm noticing about middle age is there's, there's less of that intensity. You know, we've Mm -hmm. all moderated enough. We can deal with our gas or we can deal with whatever, you know, we've, we've learned to sublimate some of those intense swings, which Mm -hmm. is what we have to do for survival. Mm -hmm. But even, you know, I was texting with a colleague this morning after a first date that went really well and thinking, oh gosh, oh. those feelings of <laughs> just being in a storm of emotion and it's all you can think of mm. and it fuels every mm-hmm. second of your day. Those happen so much less frequently for us. So it's, it's in that yeah. way, it's nice to be near teenagers and kind of get a contact high from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly, it comes with the contact lows, but <laughs> Yes. Nietzsche has that quote about um, women and I always am appropriating it to use for other things, but like the all women, they make the highs higher and the lows more frequent. Um, And I'm like, oh, children, they make the high, you know, or like anything, (laughs) mental illness, you know, like, um, because that's true of almost anything affecting your life Um, that it, it, you know, the way your emotions are contingent on, on all the in, different inputs. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. So um, I wanted to ask you about how place affects your poetry because mm-hmm. um, we do have, you know, beekeeping and um, the ocean 
is a presence in your work. Um, and I know you surf. Is that right? I do. Okay. Thank okay. you. I think there are two things about place. One of the things um, that strikes me about this book is to me, the hive feels like a domestic sphere. And so I have some poems of exact addresses in the book that chart places I've made homes or made hives. And, and one is my childhood home. One is the home where I first had my daughter. And then one is the home that we first, or the apartment that we first moved into when we moved to California. So thinking of the ways in which our domestic experiences are often contained by this neutral space of home and of place, I think that's really significant and important. Mm. And then right now, you know, I've, I've been in California 11 years now um, and it has given me a sense of place, but in, in a way that I had to leave the other places, I had to leave the Midwest to probably really be able to claim it and to see how much of the Midwest is both in my person and in my work. Mm-hmm. And then to feel like I get this second act, this California light, this proximity I did, we moved from the mission to you know, four blocks from Ocean Beach, which is a city beach. It's an interesting mm-hmm. kind of beach with a seawall that's full of graffiti um, that allows me and invites me into this practice every morning where I wake up early and I read a little something in the dark and then blearily make my way down to the beach and I surf mat, actually. I don't have a surfboard anymore, but I have this inflatable mat and fins. So it's sort of like boogie boarding, but it's a little more heavy. So I can get out into the big waves and have these crushing experiences. And I'm, you know, I, I would hate to give the impression that I'm good, but I am daily. And the practice is so important to me, partly because of wow. this, you know, moving between the elements. Hmm. And I guess this isn't really about place. So I've, I've morphed, my daughter accuses me of morphing every conversation to surfing so that I can talk about this feeling of being out in the water, you know, being far away from the earth and the tethers of the earth. You can't email me when I'm out there. My thoughts are truly my own. Even though I'm with other people approximately, I'm really out there by myself in an mm-hmm. element. Um, and that's become this really opening. You know, when I first moved to California, I thought it was all about the mountains. And that, you know, we snowboarded all the time and we couldn't believe we could live in this city and just drive a few hours and be in the mountains. Mm. And I love that. But it was discovering the water that also expanded my understanding of what the light is in California, which is so different. So although I don't know you can feel that in requeening, I think my second book that I'm working on right now has a lot to do with that sort of opening. And I, I find myself when I go to art museums really attracted to the painter's who have moved somehow from the Midwest. It's not on purpose, but I seem mm. to gravitate toward people who are thinking about California and thinking about the West. Um, Diebenkorn is someone who comes to my mind, to mind partly because he was painting in San Francisco, but just his perceptions of how the colors work here and how the light works here. So that sense of place is super important to me. I don't know exactly how it infuses my work, but it does, it's there. That is so interesting. Um, I'm kind of obsessed I think all, I, I hope all poets are obsessed with the idea of light um, and the different qualities of light. Um, <clears throat> and I think a lot about how, I mean, painters always have their unique, like I was just writing about a Wyeth um, painting. Um, and I mean, that kind of, somehow it's both dirty and clean Wyeth light. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I, 
and I just heard this Rilke quote the other day um, where he's saying, um, you know, there's something about um, Cezanne that is above the personal. And he was going on about this. And I was like, what are you talking about? If I see a Cezanne, I know immediately it's like, I see these apples and I know like flying past me on Twitter or whatever. And I'm like, Oh, there's, it goes a Cezanne. <laughs> like, so, so like that uniqueness of perception um, and, um, and vision and articulation. And um, so I'm really, you know, I think like we could all write a poem about light, a light experience and it would be, it would be very unique. Um, Love that. It makes so much sense too, after your question, that you would be writing about Wyeth, who I think of as maybe being the first painter I understood to be really attached to a place mm. and seeing it must have been a museum that we'd gone to in Maine, but but that was maybe my first discovery of that tradition of the, the sort of Northeast and those painters and what was happening there. Yeah, I find, I find his work really interesting. Um, can you tell me more about this California light? Because I've just gotten done. I just read three Octavia Butler novels and the first two were the parable of the sower and parable mm-hmm. of the talent. And it's in like post-apocalyptic California. So I have spent more time in Butler's apocalyptic California and I have never been spent time in California as an adult. So I would just love to live vicariously through to what you want to say about <laughs> California light. Um, well, there's a certain kind of California light that I can't, I don't know that I'm, I'm capable of describing, but it comes after rain mm. and it's almost like the air has been scrubbed clean and the light is the purest. It's the purest light I've ever felt or experienced. Mm. And it, there's no particulate, which of course is really complicated in California because we spend many months of the year masked and, and watching the particulate from fires mm-hmm. on our cars and, and knowing it's in the air and sensing it in the air. But there are these days after rain um, where the fog clears and the light feels almost palpably clean mm-hmm. and, and rich. But because where I live in San Francisco, we also have months at a time, it seems, where the light is heavy and white and it's never a gray like the midwest that can feel gray and dark and oppressive and in fact the foggiest days are blindingly light because there's so much white in the air so think of that and then for Mm -hmm. me california is also because i'm in the water right before dawn um getting to watch the dawn they're just spectacular the pink light so i think Mm -hmm. i've never and i look at people's pictures of the midwest i know i grew up there I don't ever remember the sky being pink in the same way. And now I see people on Instagram with their pink Midwestern skies. And I think, who was I for that? I don't remember that, but, but having the, the sort of pink orange light that's at the mm-hmm. beginning and end of each day here feels very California to me. That is so interesting. Thank you for saying that and for bringing up, I mean, I think it's easy to feel like, because I'm on the East coast, right. And you're on the West and it's easy to feel like the other coasts don't know or like acknowledge the problems <laughs> that are happening right on one side or the other. And, and of course there's so much space and between us too, where, where much is happening. Um, and, you know, I think I was, I was an adult before I heard the term flyover country. Um, but, um, <laughs> you know, I was like, Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, 
but thinking about, you know, in terms of environment. And I mean, I think a lot about how it's, it's impossible to keep your environment out of your poems, out of your writing that, um, I don't know that I feel like we're kind of planted where we are and we grow out of where we are. Um, and right now I'm, I'm so jealous hearing about morning light and um, because right now I'm surrounded by, you know, there's so many trees in North Carolina and um, I cannot see the sun until, you know, you can kind of see it through the trees. Mm. And I've kind of sworn to myself that a goal of my life would be to have a house that was actually facing cardinal directions instead of at this weird, we're askew. So there's like a corner of the house, the sun will rise. And so it's really hard to see, um, you know, where the sun is coming from in this like midday when it comes between the pines and it's right over overhead. Um, but we live in a lot of pine shade and mm. that's interesting to me too. Um, that's interesting because you know right away what comes to mind is cb Wright writing about shade the shade of the trees oh, and, yes. and light i mean i think of her as one of the great poets of light in a lot of ways mm. and that's you know we were talking about the the trouble with with the relationship between poetry and empathy so i don't think it's that but but she's someone who introduces me to your region and and so poets in place yeah. in that relationship not that it's your region but that side of the country um I love that idea of poets in place. And I think yeah. that you said flyover country, I mean, that's where I'm from. And mm-hmm. I never, I've ever thought I would love the ocean. I grew up on Lake Michigan mm-hmm. and thought this is it for me. It's freshwater mm-hmm. forever. So it's interesting to think of the ways that place completely changes us and breaks yeah. us open. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Swimming in freshwater lakes. I think it's, um, when you get to experience like how heavy the body is in, that, in, in freshwater, it's just um, it's wild. Um, I grew up, we had a pond for part of my childhood, um, a very dirty pond. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but you know, like when you got desperate enough, that's, you would sometimes go in it. Um, so yeah, that's really interesting to think about bodies of water and place. Um, and it makes me think of that beautiful, you know, anthology, um, the poems country with, by Shara Leslie and um and um is it Bruce Snyder who co-edits that or is that I can't know it's on my shelf I haven't even read the whole thing I kind of dip into it and read short pieces and it's so good um um Elizabeth Bradfield's essay in there on water and kind of um the littoral you know like the edges Mm. of water it's it's a really an incredible book um, and anthologies are so much work. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I think of Natalie Diaz too, who writes, mm. and I think regular is regularly is asking us to interrogate our relationship with water and our and the bodies of water. Mm-hmm. I've heard her speak before and yeah. and ask, you know, what what body of water is yours, or what's your mm-hmm. relationship with your body of water, which is a conundrum for me to answer. And I think you know, I write from both the Lake Michigan and the Pacific bodies of water. That is, that's an amazing question. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really interesting question. I would love to see what students wrote about to that. Um, I feel Mm. like it'd be really, because for me, it would be the Rappahannock river in Virginia. Oh yeah. Um, That's what I grew up swimming in, um, or dabbling in, (laughs) but, um, yeah, like those are my like early childhood memories of the Rappahannock and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful river. 
Um, but, but, you know, right. That's an indigenous name. Um, and I think that's so interesting the way, um, you know, Natalie Diaz writes about the museum of water and, um, the, the presence of names and, um, yeah, that's really, really incredible. I think to think about, I'm always interested in how names enter a poetic text and will act as disruption, um, mm. or like, cause it, you don't have control really over a name. Um, I mean, there are, there are, and things have been renamed, right. That were, that did have indigenous names, but a lot of times the indigenous names survive. I'm having that. I'm moment. silent. Cause I'm cataloging the names in my book right now. <laughs> I'm trying oh. to think of what, what would, what would we understand from both my positionality and my life just from the names? Yeah. I'm not sure yet. I'm gonna have to think on that one and get back to you. Is there a poem you would like to read? No, I, I almost, I wanted a second poem when you read, um, when you read your labor as an exotic vacation, I almost immediately wanted another poem. Um, well, there, I would love to read a hyben. Ooh, please. Um, I feel like I always read the same ones. Part of it is that they're long. Mm. Um, <laughs> and so I don't always want to read the really, really long ones. Uh, maybe I'll read the Ides of March one, which I think of as um, also being a high school poem, just because when you're a high school teacher, Shakespeare is always in your rotation and always something you're thinking about. So um, this is the hyphen on the Ides of March. The Ides of March have come, but not gone. And we are in the car on the way to school. The girl is crying again, cannot catch her breath or remember how or why, only that she is angry and I am the problem. There are times these days I wish for something impossibly dramatic, a piano or anvil to disgorge itself from sky perhaps and land beside us rather than continue this infinity of quarrel. Who won't listen or love? Who doesn't understand? Who can't be bothered to pick up her socks from the living room floor? Who is this child beside me, railing against each word, hurling insults until I too begin to weep? You are horrible, she says, I hate you. And it's not as if I hold my tongue, laced more with pain than poison. We are a wild primal thing. I want to fling myself from the car. She wants to fling me from the car, but we both need me to keep my hands on the wheel steady in traffic, ignoring glancers from drivers to our left and right. This is none of their business. Listen, I am no Caesar, need no lifelong crown. To say a girl must overthrow her mother to wake her way as a woman is absurd, yet, as she winds up again in fresh attack, you never, you always, I can't stand. I wonder if she'd thrill to see me conquered on the marble stair or even just this dashboard so she can rise to rule her own Octavius. Crow feather and strife, so common we learn to praise, not to bury them. Thank you. Um, it's it's interesting that you meant, you brought up Amy Nazuko Matato or earlier because um, I really I always think of 
Amy's work with Haibun um, and often teach some of hers in my like intro to poetry classes. When did you first come to the forum? Um, I came to the forum accidentally when I was trying to write these poems of adolescence. I was really trying to to record what was happening and what was what I was finding interesting. Um, and I just couldn't write line breaks. I couldn't, I, I knew I wasn't writing prose, but I also couldn't break the lines. And so I mm -hmm. thought I was writing prose poems and I actually read Amy's essay in, I think it's on poets.org about Haibun. Mm -hmm. So that's how I first found it. And then just went down a rabbit hole and I read Basho and they read Forrest Gander's core samples and I mm. read all of Kamiko Han I could find. And, and what struck me was that there's this huge gap between Basho and then these contemporary poets who were writing in it. I really can't find, at least in my very limited research, anything in between. And then I decided I didn't need anything in between because from those poets, I understood that it was a really perfect form for what I was interested in, which is that you know tension yeah. both the tension between being a child and being a woman, the tension of adolescence, the tension between mother and daughter, all of that feels represented by the, the tension between the prose and the poem and the desire to be expansive, which is very much where I was. I needed those long and not, never ending lines, but the need for compression. And um, so that's actually why I ended up working with Amy was that I, I looked for a workshop, a summer workshop where I could yeah. um, dig in a little deeper and think about this relationship between prose and poetry. And, yeah. um, you know, I end the book on a, it's not a high bun, it's, it's not an essay. Maybe, it, maybe it's a lyric essay, but I found myself really pulled toward prose mm -hmm. in the, the latter part of putting together this book. So that's where the high bun comes from. I think that there is something about, I mean, I'm, always interested in hybridity and in these forms. I, in fact, I don't think it was until C.D. Wright's Casting Deep Shade that I learned and I was writing about it and I learned about the term prosymmetric, um, mm. which is like a blending of prose and poetry lines. And um, I didn't know that word before, um, but I'm really interested that it seems to be a form especially and of course, you know, Basho created the, the hyphen form as like this journaling, you know, I don't remember if it was the, um, the haiku or the tanka that he would use. Um, the in, haiku. Okay. In the narrow road. It's a, it, well, he's going back and forth. Um, and that's what I love is, is that yeah. that book isn't, you know, my hyphen are, are mostly prose poem, the end, mm -hmm. or, you know, prose haiku. He goes back and forth. You, it, it, yeah. The, there's tension and traveling yeah. even between the two forms. Yeah, that traveling's part of it. Um, and I mean, I'm, I, I, it's kind of, I kind of effortlessly write syllabi when I'm doing things with hybrid work, um, with writing by women and and queer writers because um, I think there's something kind of subversive about hybrid work. And I think there's something about letting the ordinary life filter in um, that happens with hybrid work. Um, and so it's like, it's, it's like the easiest syllabus for me to write because there are so many, I don't know. I think that it's like a really incredible, um, you know, kind of 
topic and genre and it does lots of of really cool different things um and I know I've said this before in this podcast, I, I overlove the word capacious, but it is capacious. It can, <laughs> it can hold a lot of things. Um, you can always use that. I love that word. I also <laughs> love this idea too of, of deconstructing. I'm in the middle of teaching creative nonfiction to my mm-hmm. students and I'm at the part in my syllabus where we're looking at experimental forms and nonlinear forms and lyric forms. And thinking about the ways in which genre distinctions are less and less important. And and certainly in my book, being able to put an essay at the end Mm -hmm. and have nobody question its belonging there. I like that you're tying that too to non-binary writers and women. I mean, we're erasing genres and distinctions in so many exciting areas and really just recognizing what's always been there. Mm-hmm. But by taking these distinctions away and recognizing that we don't need to hold difference in the ways that we used to, it's so liberating in life and in writing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I definitely had a disaster at the beginning of a writing course. I think it was one of the first ones I taught where I was like, there's no such thing as genre. <laughs> like, <laughs> and my students were like, incredible. They were like so on board with it and they, you know, I was like, we're doing, we're, you know, oh, great. So that means like now when I ask for a nonfiction assignment, I get a poem and I was like, wait y'all. And then, <laughs> so I have learned like you teach, you teach the basic genres that you want to teach that you whatever, you know, um, even if you're talking about hybridity. Um, and I, I think it's, um, because right, then you know what you're going to break. Like you, you teach the laws in order to know how to break the laws or what you want to break. Um, and C.D. Wright has this great quote about um, genre being, the, is it the shelter you leave and return to? It's, it's maybe not the word shelter, mm. but um, the idea that you like leave it and you come back to it, there's like, it's like a touchstone. Um, and I really like that idea. Um, but I have learned the hard way um, to keep some of my opinions to myself <laughs> in the classroom. Yeah. In the classroom, <laughs> because it's, it's easier to, you know, you, I think you need to know what your building blocks are. Or you need to know what's in your toolbox or, you know, whatever metaphor you want to use for learning craft. Um, it's, I, it's just really impossible to know the self too without others. And um, I was talking to a student poet this week and they wanted me to read some of their poems and I did. And, um, and then I said to them, you know, what are you reading right now? What poetry are you reading right now? And they said, oh, I don't read poetry. And um, I was like, well, this explains some of the um, issues I'm seeing, which is that Like, you know, if you want to write a song, I hope you know lots of great songs that you love because like all those things shape who you are and how you create. And so like the reading we're doing is constantly like coming back and and feeding us and fueling us and teaching us to think new ways about new things. And I mean, I know requeening has really changed for me um, how I think about motherhood in poetry um and I you know and I think it's changed how I think about bees like that there it's um that hopefully we're like cracking open things in new ways um in fact in your essay um or yeah I was wondering 
how to speak about this piece as well, um, Bad at Bees. But you talk about the artist Agonitha Dyke. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, did you want to read a portion? Because since I have a poet here, I should should have you read some of this because it's sure. so beautiful. And it's such an Ars Poetica to me. Um, like, I love thinking about this. All right, well, why don't I read? Maybe I can read from the beginning. Yeah. In the end. Sounds great. Okay, Bad at Bees. Agonitha Dyke is an artist who puts broken figurines and tchotchkes into hives for her bees to mend, a collaboration. The objects come out with honeycomb in place of chipped rims, missing limbs, fractured edges. I think my husband hoped this second round of bees, a gift for my birthday, would do the same for me knit around the hole the first hive left when it swarmed away some years back, right as I got too sick to notice. My favorite dyke piece is a figurine of three people in Georgian dress, their bodies transformed, two women's wigs honeycombed and heightened, chairs ballooning behind them like giant wings or a tsunami mounting about to sweep them away. The comb binds them together with a thick single leg beneath the table, slickens the surface of the checkerboard on top. The pantalooned man leading over is flounced and ruffled in comb, a new arm of clean hexagon extending from his shoulder around one of the skirted ladies. I wanna ask my bees to fix the handmade bowl I splintered, but I've been afraid to crack the lid since they arrived and I installed the nucleus. I can't even bring myself to remove the queen cage I left dangling between frames once the bees chewed through the sugar plug to extract her. That alien piece of furniture is probably messing up what is called bee space in the new architecture of the hive where workers should be pulling combs straight and making an order of things. And so at the end of the essay, um, I decide I'm gonna fix this, so I say, when the new beekeeping gloves I ordered get here, I'm not gonna mess around anymore. I'll suit up and crack that hive open to fix it all up. But I'm not gonna make a regular habit of it or anything. I'll hack the queen cage from the comb where the bees have ensconced it in their craft and just leave them alone for a few months to get settled, make some brood and honey. I trust they will forgive me, find a way to rebuild, mend my destructive path through their ordered home. And while it may not be a figurine, my handmade bowl or some tchotchke enhanced by carefully constructed creamy comb, I'll place the queen cage and what's attached to it on my writing desk. Maybe it will inspire a new way to think about containment, my human form. And maybe some mornings it will make me close up my desk and get back in the water. I hope no one will see it there and ask me about it though, because they hate how I sound when I say things like, yeah, I keep bees in my backyard, or yeah, I surf most mornings. Yeah, I'm a poet, as if I'm any good at any of it. I don't really know what I'm doing most days. I just like to touch fear. Thank you so much. So beautiful. 
Thank you for asking. I think that's a piece I don't read because it's so long. And mm. I love that. I really, that was, a, that was the last thing I wrote for this book. And it, it felt like so much coming together in one place. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love the, the artist's work who you bring in and um, the way they have this collaborative art practice with bees. Um and how you're thinking about it. And um, I think it really gets at something deep about how there are things that we can control and then there's kind of a, a wild and changing element that is also part of our work and we don't really hugely understand it. And um, like, I've been meeting with a psychologist who said to me, like, he kept giving me all these metaphors. And so of course, like, you know, I'm just writing them all down being like, maybe I can use these for something, but he says, you know, your unconscious is like a, an anthill. It's constantly shifting and it's growing and it's changing it. Um, and I think about like, you know, coming back to the, the bees and the way they're creating this calm. And, um, I just, I think it's really incredible to think about that. There's something that's out of our control, and we kind of respond to it, but it's, it's kind of moving on its own as well. And that's what makes mm-hmm. writing so interesting is that it's constantly changing and we're having to adjust and um, yeah, it's more than us. Oh, that's so beautiful. And what I'm going to take with me today is thinking about how to cultivate more contact with that wild untamed thing, you know, before I had published a book, I felt like I had a a more intimate relationship with that in my writing because Mm -hmm. it lived just in my world. Mm -hmm. And so I could cultivate that wild untamed. Oh, thank you for bringing those words into that conversation. I just, thank you. Amazing. Thank you. I definitely know I'm going to be um, having my students read Bad at Bees and think about, (laughs) you know, and think about all these things because in the way the art making is so intrinsic to this here um and you even get at the who was it that said the line about it being embarrassing to be a poet um oh I don't know but it's perfect (laughs) I isn't it like I want to say it's like Elizabeth Bishop but I could be wrong um we can google it later yeah right um because I brought that I was writing about that in my memoir the other day and um and it, uh, this brings us back to motherhood because I was like, no, the most embarrassing thing in the world isn't to be a poet, it's to be pregnant. <laughs> that, and again, the things that are kind of the way, the shape of your body and the way you're extending into space, like you don't have control over that, that it's just like, it just happens, right? And um, it's, I mean, and sometimes even pregnancy just happens and um, that, yeah, that it's this thing that, everyone's responding to around you and you just sometimes really don't want any response. Um, wow. I cannot wait to read that part of your memoir. Uh, (laughs) Well, I mean, it is. Yeah. I mean, that could be a whole other long conversation Mm. about the public life of pregnancy, but the idea that it's embarrassing in the same way Mm. that being a writer is, and, and it's such a public claim. Mm on something, which is, I think what I'm getting at at the end, like, like saying, yeah, I surf every day or yeah, I keep bees. Those are claims that I don't feel fully mine Mm -hmm. to make, even though they're true about my life. I feel like there's so much that those ideas are saddled with that I'm not claiming when I Mm -hmm. say those things. 
And so to, to be pregnant in the world is to claim so much that I think I was very ambivalent yeah. about when I was actually pregnant. Yeah. Oh, I love the way you think. Oh, thank you for joining me today and reading poems. Thank you. This has been such a pleasure and um, I'm really excited for your readers. And um, if anyone's listening and they haven't read Requeening yet, I hope they get their copy right away and um, think alongside you as you like open up some really important conversations um, and return to them because I, I do think one of the weird the, the weird things about living is that we do things that everyone else has been doing, but we feel so alone in them or we feel like we're the first person doing them because you are, you're the first you doing them. Right. Um, so thank you. Well, thank you for this podcast too. And both for having me, but also from, it's really reminding me of the first time I found commonplace Mm. and the ways that, that these conversations that invite our humanity into conversation with our poetry they're so much fun to listen to and I've discovered such great poets via your podcast so thank you so much oh good thank you so much because I adore commonplace and I feel like it gave me an MFA like I you know in some ways better than my MFA (laughs) (laughs) now you're giving it to people so you're you're stepping into that realm I hope so. Thank you so much, Amanda. Thank you. And listeners, if you will check the listening notes to episode 20, you will find links to Amanda Moore's website and work, as well as links to some of the artists we talked about today. Thank you for listening.